third John, the third epistle or the third letter of the Apostle John. Again, like Second John, it is uh, less a letter than a postcard, but it is every bit uh, a letter, and uh, it, it drives home uh, a very important uh, lesson. Uh, sometimes, you know, there's an old saying that less is more, and uh, if a passage has one or two particular things, points that it makes, better leave with those one or two things than attempt to make 20 points and uh, forget them all. And so this is a very, very focused epistle. It's trying to uh, uh, provide the body of Christ through the ages with a couple of very important lessons practically for our lives. The letter centers upon uh, three uh, different men in the early church. A man by the name of Gaius, Gaius the generous, Gaius the uh, hospitable. Then there is Diotrephes, Diotrephes the dictator, uh, the little Napoleon, the little tyrant in the early church. And then Demetrius, who was the quietly diligent servant of the Lord in that early church. Sometimes we can uh, read concerning the early church and uh, think that everyone in it was perfect and uh, got our rose-colored glasses on, so to speak, as we read the Bible, and everybody was 100% committed to the Lord, 110%, and there were no problems, and everyone was like the Apostle Paul and, and all. And if anybody ever believes that, we know they've never read the book of Acts or any of the epistles. There were plenty of problems in, uh, in the early church, and the reason that there were problems in the early church was because there were people in the early church, and uh, specifically Christians in the early church. And uh, uh, not all of us are perfect at every uh, moment in, uh, in our Christian lives, and, and there was one that was creating some significant problem at this point in, in the early uh, church. But God works all things together for good. He's going to make all of it praise Him. And even the problems in the early church, what they ended up producing were these letters, these epistles that were written in order to give instruction related to the problems that they were facing, knowing that we would face these things all through the ages and thus have the mind of God on how to deal with these things. Uh, John begins his letter, just like he did with Second John, by uh, identifying himself as the writer by the title, The Elder. And as we saw in Second John, we know that the elder John is referring to himself because Third John is like Second John, and Second John and Third John are identical to First John in its style, in the content that it's dealing with in every way. And in First John, John uh, identifies himself as the writer of the letter. He begins in his description. He doesn't call himself by name. He refers to himself as the elder. That can refer to uh, a spiritual title in the body of Christ, as we saw last week, and, and uh, um, or it could just refer to the fact that he is an older man, an older saint. And uh, John is uh, uh, thought to be uh, in his between 70 and 80 years of age at this time, uh, quite old for ancient times. And, uh, and some believe he was well into his 90s. And so he brings, whether it's the office of an elder or he brings this uh, tremendous wealth of, of a long history with Jesus Christ to bear by the Holy Spirit to this situation, of course it's all 
very, very valuable to us. Now, in, in the model of, of old uh, ancient letters, the writer would identify himself or herself immediately because the letters were written on scrolls and that way you would know who wrote this letter without rolling the scroll to the end, which would be no problem with this letter, but it would be a greater problem with the book of Romans or 1 Corinthians or something like that. So the second part of, of a typical letter would be then to identify who you're writing this letter to. And he tells us that in verse 1, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in Truth. So he's writing to a man by the name of Gaius, and Gaius was a very, very common name in the Roman Empire. And, uh, and so there are four different Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament, and uh, any attempt to identify one of those Gaiuses with this Gaius, it, you can't really do it uh, dogmatically because the, the name Gaius was as common as the name John or Smith in this culture. And, and so you, you couldn't do that kind of thing authoritatively. We do know that he was probably a member of one of the churches located in what was known in the ancient world as Asia Minor. We know it today as Turkey. And uh, that was the sphere of influence that John had as he was kind of the leader or the pastor of the church at Ephesus there, kind of in that region. And so he's writing to a man located in one of the churches kind of under his his oversight now you notice john refers to gaius as uh the beloved gaius and he's going to refer to gaius as the beloved four times in the epistle i mean uh, in 14 verses he's going to call him beloved four times so you kind of get the hint uh, john it really really likes this guy and what lord's doing in his life and and what he, he means to him. And so he's referred to as the beloved in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, and then again in verse 11. So to call someone or, or to uh, write in a letter to the beloved Gaius or to the beloved whoever is in essence to say in, in ancient times, to my dear friend. And, uh, and, and it would be something where someone would read that and their heart would perk up uh, as, as the writer would be uh, speaking about how much the friendship and relationship means to him. He says concerning Gaius, he said, whom I love in the truth. And uh, so here is Gaius, greatly loved by John. It's a, and the word love there is, is agape. He loves him with an agape love. He loves him with a committed love. He loves him with a genuine love, but he loves him in the truth. Because the heart and the attitude of Gaius toward the truth, toward the Word of God, matched the same commitment and attitude that the Apostle John had toward the Word of God also. You want to, you, you want to unite two lives in a powerful, powerful way. Find two human beings that have the same respect and love for the Word of God and commitment to the Word of God. And you're going to unite those two in, in a very strong uniting force in that mutual love for the Word of God. Today we have a saying, don't we, that blood is thicker than water, and uh, meaning that a blood relationship is a deeper relationship 
than a friendship or something that's based upon water. But there's something, uh, there is a commitment and a love that goes even deeper than, than the blood commitment. And that is the one that the Holy Spirit brings to two lives or to a body, uh, uh, to God's people, based upon a mutual love for the Word of God and the God behind that Word. And John recognized in Gaius a person that was like him in his attitude toward the Word uh, of God. And then he greets him in verse 2, and again a common way they would always begin by essentially saying, I hope everything is going well with you. That's how we write our letters, dear so-and-so, um, before we get down to the actual uh, you know, meat of the letter, the intent of the letter. It's always polite and genuine to say, I hope everything's going good with you. I hope everything is well with you. And that's what John does here now in the letter, beloved. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So he prays three things for Gaius. He prays that Gaius would prosper in all things. He prays that Gaius would be in health. And he prays that these areas of, of his life would prosper to the same degree that he is prospering uh, spiritually. So this greeting is a very, very common greeting in, in the ancient world. It would be like saying, I know you're doing great spiritually. I'm happy for that. And uh, I pray that you're doing just as well on the physical level, in, in your material prosperity and in, in your, your physical uh, health. May your physical health be as good as your spiritual health. May you, may you be prospering financially material in a way that allows you to um, express the fullness of what you are spiritually and principally concerning Gaius that was his heart toward the body of Christ extending hospitality to those that were traveling from city to city in in taking the gospel and the Word of God uh, around the ancient uh, World. And so that's what the prayer was. Someone has uh, said concerning this particular prayer where he asks him uh, to, he prays that he would prosper and be in health just as or to the same degree as your soul prospers. That uh, there are many in the body of Christ, if we were to pray that, <laughs> we would say, you know, that, that uh, you would be, uh, uh, that your soul would be, is a perfect match for what uh, well I'm getting the whole thing mixed up now is it really I need Rob Rob what was I going to say here on, on this this whole thing so to declare may your physical health be as good as your spiritual health to some Christians would mean to to immediately uh, hospitalize them but that that's not the case with with Gaius holy obedient Christ-like uh, life. Now, when he speaks to him about prosperity and about his, his health, it's a personal greeting. And I don't think that any uh, fair-minded uh, and careful uh, student of the Bible would ever look at uh, verse 3 here and or verse 2 here and declare that God is guaranteeing that every Christian will always be wealthy and always be in, in good health as long as they have enough faith. And there is a teaching, and this is one of the verses that are used, it's called the prosperity doctrine, that as long as we have enough faith, we will always be materialistic, uh, materially prosperous 
and, uh, and then we will always be healthy. We will never know any kind of, of, of sickness. And, um, and I, I'll bring it up again. I, I mention it usually when we hit uh, passages uh, like this, but uh, I'm firmly convinced, and uh, if you can show me uh, uh, considerable evidence uh, to the contrary, then I'll be willing to listen to you uh, after the service. Well, no, I won't really. That's not sincere. Uh, but I would. But the fact of the matter is, is that if the Lord tarries, every single one of us is going to die of what we get sick of last. That's how God's going to take us into heaven. And then we will know perfect prosperity and wealth and perfect health. There is no way short of entering into the glory of heaven that we will experience the fullness of what has been purchased for us on the cross of Calvary in undoing the terrible damage that was done through the fall. And, and to believe otherwise is to do, uh, set up categories and, and do a mental gymnastics thing that you've got to do terrible things with the Scriptures to, to make it work. It just doesn't work out. It doesn't work doctrinally, and it doesn't work practically. I remember years ago, I was watching uh, television. I was watching uh, TBN uh, specifically, and uh, there was a prosperity teacher on the air. And uh, this guy, he's just good. He is one. I mean, there's some of these guys you just look at and say, if I had one-tenth of their gift to communicate truth, I mean, they can make you covet. They're good. And he's one of those guys. He is just really, really good. And he's loved by his congregation. I mean, he's, he's in that congregation. This whole congregation all around him in a circle. We're talking about somewhere like six, eight, ten thousand 10,000 people in, in this place. And what, what caught my eye, because I've listened to him, I had listened to him before. He's alive today, still ministering. And... Um, but what caught my eye is, is that he had his foot in a cast. And he had a sling for his arm. So, wow, that's a tough sell for the fact that um, if you've got enough faith, you never have to go through anything. So I just sat, I just listened to him. And what, what was he going to communicate to the body related to all of this? And... And uh, so he was teaching now on that Sunday morning following two surgeries, one on his shoulder and one, one on his, his foot. And he spoke about how the, the fact that the surgeons had operated on some symptoms in his life. Not a real problem, but they had to go up and, and, and clean out a couple symptoms of problems there within, within his life. And all. It wasn't any illness that he, he wasn't going to confess that this body is fallen, it is broken, we're going to get a new one one day and all. And, uh, and, and so he's claiming this whole thing related to it. And as the TV cameras, it was wonderful. Sometimes the cameramen, they don't know when not to pan the crowd. Sometimes they have like this gigantic evangelism thing and they pan. There's only one person asleep at 50,000 in the stadium or yawning and they zoom in on them. You know? Well, they panned this crowd and they didn't have to find one. The whole group, they, that congregation loved their pastor, but they weren't buying that at all. I remember Arthur Blessed listening to him years and years ago. And uh, at a, 
he had done a study at a conference and someone gave me the tape and it was one of the greatest ministry sessions God just just got on him and blessed everybody that listened to what he had to say through there he was truly a prophet for that hour in in that in in that particular auditorium there in Houston and he is the guy that used to carry the cross all over the world and uh, tell people about about the Lord and uh, and he told a story about this church that he had been to and he said we had this and he's talking to a whole room of Pentecostal people and I'm not putting that down don't misunderstand me he's talking about a whole room that that the prosperity gospel heavily represented in that room not by everyone not every Pentecostal believes that but heavily represented in the room and he tells this story the fact that he's in this church that seats thousands and he spoke and the Lord met with them and they had healing lines and they came forward and and they laid hands on one person after another and he said you know we cast anything and everything out of everybody that we could and and prayed healing on every and the whole thing and all and and it was just a glorious meeting he said and then the pastor started to drive him to the airport and as the pastor was driving him to the airport, Arthur said, You know, in, in all of the busyness of the evening and all, I never got a chance to meet your wife. And, uh, and the man pulled the car over and he began just to weep. He began to sob convulsively. And he proceeded to tell Arthur Blessed that his wife was at home terribly ill. And that here he is doing this whole thing at the church and putting on this show and this appearance and everything. And he, he couldn't even bring it to his own household. And Arthur Blessed said he, he put his arm around this pastor and he said, Don't worry, when your theology fails, Jesus never fails. <laughs> I thought that was very, very beautiful. It's not saying we won't ever, that we'll always be rich. It's not saying that we'll always have perfect health until we go into heaven. It's a beautiful greeting, a beautiful uh, expression of his desire for, the, for this kind of thing in his, his life. Now notice in verses 3 and 4, he says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And so Gaius' life was one that brought uh, tremendous joy uh, to uh, the Apostle John. Now these apostles weren't machines. Uh, they weren't androids or some kind of robots or something like this. They're real live human beings. And... Uh, Times of encouragement, times of discouragement, ups, downs, warfare, all kinds of things that they're facing. But there's something about Gaius' life here that brought joy to the Apostle John's life. And he rejoiced greatly at the news that was brought to him by other brethren that when they came to John, Telling them, uh, telling him uh, that Gaius was filled with the truth and Gaius walked in the truth. He walked in the Word of God. He was full of the Word of God. And, and the fact that the Word of God was in him was demonstrated in his walking in the Word. Now, walking is a, that's a progress 
kind of word, isn't it? It's more than standing in the truth. Gaius is growing in his relationship with the Lord. He's walking, he's making progress, but that, and that progress is occurring in the truth of the Word of God. And, and that, that blessed the Apostle, Apostle John. And so Gaius is, is growing in all, and apparently what Gaius had done was he had extended hospitality to many of the traveling evangelists and missionaries, traveling pastors that were going uh, back and forth in that early church, and they're going from Ephesus to Antioch and then to Smyrna, and then they're, they're uh, you know, going over to Thyatira and Athens and Philippi, all kinds of movement in the ancient world of different gifts and callings in the body of Christ. Pastors, teachers, missionaries, apostles, um, prophets, making their way all across the land. And again, as we saw last week, the inns, if they were available in a particular city, they weren't always safe to be in physically because of fleas and rats, and they weren't always safe to be in spiritually because they could tend to be the center of of, of tremendous immorality and debauchery. So what Gaius did is that whatever city he's in, and there's somebody traveling in the Lord's work from one place to another, they had a place to stay at his house. And what greater thing for anyone who has ever traveled, but certainly traveled in the Lord's work, uh, one of the greatest things that can happen is not only to be spared staying someplace that's full of temptation and danger, but then the added blessing of being brought into a place, into a home where the peace of God rests upon that place. And that's what Gaius was doing. He was extending hospitality to these kind of servants. And, you know, I think it was Spurgeon said, um, a lie travels all around the world before truth can get its boots on. <laughs> and sometimes bad news travels very, very fast in the body of Christ. But good news travels too. And when a person does good things, when a person does something good to, to a person, they end up talking about that. And, and these people have fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children and friends. And, and the word gets out, and the word was out concerning Gaius, that this guy takes care of people in need on, on, their, on their trip. And, and that, that blessed uh, John. Now, when he says, uh, blessed John concerning Gaius, now when he, when he says, uh, here in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That may indicate that Gaius was one of John's converts. He may have come to know the Lord under John's ministry. Or, or it, it may reveal to the very least that he had been under John's pastoral care for a time. To lead someone to the Lord is one of the greatest experiences a person can have in all of life. To lead them out of darkness and into the light, into a personal relationship with God through, through Jesus Christ. Hardly anything surpasses it, except then to watch that same person grow. 
in their relationship with God. And not only grow, but grow into maturity to where their life is now making a difference in the world for the kingdom of God. And it's an encouragement, as it was to John, that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. And, and John was encouraged by the faithfulness of Gaius. Now, conversely, there's hardly anything more painful in the Christian life than to invest hours and hours and hours and hours and weeks and months and years in a person's life and then to watch them throw it away for a life of sin or to throw it away for a life of selfishness. And Gaius teaches us, you know, may each one of our lives forever be a blessing to those that led us to the Lord and those that have so significantly invested the most valuable thing that they possess in life, a very finite thing called time, into our lives. And one of the best ways to encourage them is to grow and grow and grow into a place of maturity and then find our place of service in the body of Christ. That's the greatest way that we have to bless them. Now notice in verse 5, John commends Gaius for his hospitality. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. In other words, this hospitality that he extended to the traveling uh, brethren, he did it to those he knew and even to those he didn't know, strangers that were traveling through. So he's a, he's a faithful uh, servant. And uh, so every missionary knew if you go into that city, this guy is going to take care of you. Now, you have to realize is that the missionaries in those days, they weren't, they weren't self-appointed. Uh, the model for missionaries in, in the early church and to this day is that missionaries were sent out. They had a letter of commendation from the church that they were sent out from. And, uh, and so we stand behind him. This person is ready to go and do what it is that, that they're saying that they're going to do. So it, it weeded out those people that might just go from city to city to city and kind of leech off of the body of Christ. And, and so here you, here you have people that even if they are a stranger, they, they, they have the commendation of the churches that they're coming from, and they knew Gaius is going to take care of you in that city. You've got a place to stay. It's a wonderful thing to be known for. And he, and he says concerning these that have been uh, experienced the uh, hospitality by Gaius who have borne witness of your love before the church. So the word was out. This guy is, is a, he loves the Lord. He loves the body of Christ. And love, of course, is the only motive that will hold up over time in our service to the Lord. That's why he, he, it was love that had him doing what he was doing. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well. Now, there's three things that he kind of lays out in here that uh, talk about uh, the qualifications of, of these particular 
uh, people, ministers that were traveling. And, and John gives him three reasons, Gaius, why these people ought to be supported. And you notice there in, in verse 6 that these folks had already made a sacrificial commitment to God's Work. He said there in, in verse 6, if you send them forward on their journey, they've already taken a step of faith. They're already serving the Lord a tremendous sacrifice to themselves already. They're not going to stay in the ministry or leave the ministry on the basis of what we do or we don't do for them. This is a settled issue between them and God. This is the, the caliber of the person that, that uh, Gaius is extending, uh, extending hospitality uh, to. They don't have any guaranteed income. They're doing what they're doing because they have simply just obeyed the Lord. And, and when a person is willing to do that, and, and then they, they, they ought to be supported uh, by the body of, of Christ. Missionaries shouldn't be the only ones that do all the sacrificing in, in the body of Christ in order for God's work to get done. So there needs to be this, those that are sent, but then there needs to be the senders too. They've already proven their commitment to the work of God by going forth, uh, not based upon any financial reward but obedience to the Lord and then he said because verse 7 they went forth for his name sake taking nothing from the Gentiles in other words they were honorable when they went to the different cities that they went to to teach the word of God to preach the gospel there they would not take anything from the Gentiles and Gentiles means here the unbelievers the people that they were ministering to, they didn't want to take an offering. They didn't want to receive anything from the unsaved, lest the unsaved would doubt their motives in doing what they were doing. The ancient world was full of teachers traveling all over the place, uh, making a living off of religion. So here you have missionaries who look and as a, a personal stand inside of their heart. Their motives are pure. We are not going to take anything from the Gentiles. We're not going to confuse the issue at all. That's somebody that's, that's worthy of, of taking uh, care of. And, and so here is uh, uh, this honorable conviction that that they had and he said we therefore in light of all of this ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth because of this kind of person they need to be supported send them forward on their journey well supplied for what God has called them to do don't don't do the bare minimum for people like this they're serving sacrificially. Make sure that they're taken care of. And the interesting thing is the very best among God's people will rarely make a need known. And uh, it's left to us to look at them and see this commitment and this calling and this level of sacrifice and then to come alongside of them and to do it in a way that is worthy of God and the way that He would uh, choose to support them. And so, therefore, he said, verse 8 again, we ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. By supporting them, we become uh, fellow workers with them. 
what they're doing out there and all, we get a part of that reward. I'm not trying to entice greed within us, but it's interesting that um, I think, I forget whether it was recent in terms of military history or whether it was uh, speaking of World War II, but one statistic that, uh, that I had read was that for every single man that was on the front line, I think it was World War II, for every single man that was on the front line, there, required, there was required six people to be in the support position for them to be successful. But, but you don't see them. But the success of the front line was dependent upon the supporters, upon those that were sending them out. And the same thing is true of the body of Christ. No one can be successful in and of themselves completely. There's a whole team that works together on things. And so as we support the different people in, in these places, we're fellow workers with them. So somebody says, well, you know, I can't be a missionary. I can't head out there and on. I don't think God's called me to do that and, and all. And, and uh, I, I don't feel that and I don't want to be guilted into doing all of that. You're right. Not everybody is. But, but we can be a part of their work by supporting them in this way. Then he moves on to the second guy. And, and, uh, and basically what uh, John is saying to Gaius is, Gaius, this hospitality that you're extending to people, keep doing it. It's biblical. You're being faithful to God in all of this. Don't let anybody stop you from doing what you're doing. Because, he moves on now to Diotrephes in verse 9. Diotrephes was hindering people in that congregation from supporting people that were traveling, from extending hospitality uh, to them. And so he says there concerning uh, Diotrephes, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. And therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and he forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So he's excommunicating people who are extending hospitality to these traveling uh, ministers. Now, it'd be nice if there were no problem or problem people in the body of Christ, but there are, and they have to be dealt with, and Diotrephes is, is one of, of those guys. Now, apparently, John had written a letter to this particular church, and um, it, either the letter was lost or Diotrephes did not like the content of the letter, and he destroyed <laughs> uh, the letter. And, uh, and so uh, he, John gets wind of the fact that uh, the leaders that he is sending through that city are not being supported by the local church, and uh, that Diotrephes is not allowing his congregation that he's pastoring to support or show hospitality to them, and, and, not, and even forbidding that they would show hospitality to the Apostle John and those that are traveling with, with him. Now, it would appear that 
in that first letter that he had sent to, to Diotrephes and to the church, he, he asked Diotrephes to please extend, you know, Christian hospitality to these missionaries that are being uh, sent out and traveling. And Diotrephes rejects the Apostle John's request. And, and John uh, lets us know uh, six things in this couple of verses here, 9 and 10, about Diotrephes. And Diotrephes is a study in what not to be as a leader in the body of Christ. These are all bad characteristics to have. He said, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them. First flaw in his character, godly character, is he loved to have the preeminence among people. And it literally means to be fond of being first. A desire to be first, a desire to be number one, a desire to hold the top spot and all. So he's a man that's full of, of selfish ambition. And he's unwilling to take the position of a servant, unwilling to accept any position in the church except uh, the top position. So he's the kind of man or woman uh, in a church that's they're power hungry and they are title and position hungry with that me first attitude and and that's what he has now kenneth weist who uh, has a series of volumes on studying you know the greek new testament and all and it's a great thing to have uh, in your library but he declared that a.t robertson another man who does wonderful work with the greek uh, that a.t robertson wrote a denominational denominational paper on diatrophies and uh, when it was published within that particular denomination, the editor told A.T. Robertson that 25 deacons uh, stopped the, uh, uh, the, the paper uh, and contacted him to show their, and express their resentment at being personally attacked. <laughs> How dare you write that? And deacon boards are notorious. Uh, in second and third and fourth and 18th generation churches for taking that, that kind of control and, and being diatrophies. It's not always, but, but it is a danger. But it's not just a danger to deacons. It's a danger to everyone. Let me tell you an embarrassing story. <clears throat> See if I have time. No, a good story I would have time. If it, was, if it were an embarrassing story about you, I would have told, but I'm, I'm out of time. I remember, you, we, we can look at Diotrephes and say, what a terrible, poor, pathetic excuse for a human being. I'm glad I'm not like that. I remember when I was a new Christian. I mean, just brand new. Just brand new. The church that I was attending, they had athletic teams. And I tried out for the softball team. And... Uh, uh, as I was trying out for the softball team and everything, they, they decided that I wasn't good enough to be on the A team, but that they'd find a place for me on the B team. And I looked at the guy, he's one of the leaders in the church, and I said, if I can't be on the A team, I'm not playing. <laughs> Diatrophies! <laughs> you know? I mean, it's there from the Adam nature, you know, and, and God has to work the thing out. I mean, what kind of arrogance is that? And he had to just look and say, you know, hurry along, let somebody change your spiritual diaper and uh, maybe try out next year. I mean, you're talking about immaturity, right? I mean, so, uh, so uh, anyway, so for this diatrophies, loves the preeminence and... Um, 
And uh, what this kind of person does is that they, they hijack the church, they hijack it away from God, and now it all exists as, as, a, as an extension of them, of what they want and, and their self-expression and their own uh, purposes. And that's why when you walk into a church like that, uh, you, there's no sense of the Spirit at work. Because it's been yanked away from Jesus, and so the Holy Spirit doesn't have anything to say amen to. So a diatrophies will kill a church, and that's why John speaks in here and says to Gaius, Listen, don't you take care of this. You stay busy about what God has called you to do. But when I get back to that city, I'm, I'm going to take care of this, because that kind of person is dangerous to, to, the, to the work of the Lord. Who's to have the preeminence in the body of Christ? Christ is to have the preeminence, Colossians 1.18. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. Here's a pastor that's going to fight Jesus for control of the church. And he's not the last one. And, uh, and of course, this wanting the preeminence is, is the exact opposite of what uh, Jesus said. Uh, leadership or any position in, in a church should look like. Say, you say, well, Diotrephes is an extraordinary, you know, nothing could ever, boy, anybody that was really, you know, spent some time with Jesus would never be afflicted by that. But then what happened with James and John? Mom, uh, we got a plan. And they got Mama to come to Jesus with a question. Um, would you uh, give me anything I ask of you? Like Jesus is stupider than me. And he's going to say yes to that. Well, what do you got in mind? Well, uh, uh, not much. We were just thinking, you know, in, at, the, at the house. And uh, I, I'd like uh, the throne at your right hand and the throne at your left hand forever and ever. Uh, both of them to be for my two sons. She's attempting, with the prodding of her sons, to secure the two most powerful positions in eternity next to God. <laughs> Do you know the reaction of the other ten apostles were when they, when they heard this uh, power play? It says they were greatly indignant. To aim for power and preeminence like that will always split leadership. It will always split a church. And Jesus, of course, brought them aside and said, listen, that's the way the world works. We don't work that way. You want to be great in my kingdom? Become the servant of all. You never, ever, I have never heard, I have never heard of a church splitting over who gets to be the head servant or the greatest slave in a congregation. It just never happens. It keeps the body safe, doesn't it? And, and that's, that's why, you know, all of the guys that are leaders in this church, and it's wonderful, we have never ever in 20 years, and I mean, I, I hope it, it always stays that way, never had a diatrophies here. Never. Never had one of those. But when a person comes and, and to serve, it was interesting when Bob died. He talked his night before. He's leaving and all, and we love him so much. And now he's the senior pastor at Calvary Chapel, Merced, and, and uh, spoke about the, the time that they had dinner with Karen and I. 
and told me a little bit about his degrees in church history and all that background. And, and uh, I, didn't even, I don't remember the discussion, but I have it regularly with people. And what I told them was, you know, what I was told as a brand, brand new Christian at the church that I was attending. I was there for a number of weeks, and I said, you guys are doing so much for me. What can I do for you? How can I help out what's going on around here? And they said, just come 20 minutes, a half hour early. Be willing to stay 20 minutes, a half hour after. We have plenty for you to do. And they put a vacuum in my hand. And I emptied garbage cans and all of that kind of stuff. And you know what it is? It is a diatrophies screen out. A diatrophies won't put up with that. And the beautiful thing about the leadership and beyond all the way through into the body is you can ask any one of them on a dime and say, listen, I need you to go take care of this, whether it's cleaning up vomit or emptying this thing out or filling a need in the children's church or whatever, and they'll do it without any hesitation. Why? Because they're servants all the way down. That's what protects us from becoming diatrophies. Now notice, um, secondly, that he would not, in verse 9, receive even the Apostle John and those traveling with him. In other words, he's a man that doesn't respect authority. I mean, he's a, here is an apostle. That's, can I have, would you mind putting me up when I come to, oh, no way, you're not going to do that, and all. And rebellious against authority. And when there is anyone in the body of Christ, I don't care what position we hold in the body of Christ, if we are no longer teachable, if there is not some group of people that when they speak into our lives, we stop cold and give tremendous weight to what they're saying then we're dead we're going to be in danger of becoming and an, uh, diatrophies he wouldn't allow anyone to speak corruption uh, correction into his life he's right everybody else is wrong that's just the way that it is and that kind of person always crashes and burns that church never lasts because it's going to going to to uh, d be destroyed by virtue of of, of that and then notice number three in that same vein as we look there at verse 9 and, and he says they, he, he does not receive us from that we can surmise that he was unteachable and he is proud he sees himself and that's what pride means in the New Testament to see myself above he sees himself above the apostle now in this and the scary thing about pride is in our lives is the very first thing that pride does is it destroys our ability to recognize our pride. And that's why it is only the mirror of the Word of God that shows us what we are and we can look at it and do what God encourages us to do with our pride and that is to humble ourselves so that He doesn't have to do it. Because He will do it and He's good at it. But it's better to, to humble ourselves. So he didn't think he had anybody to answer to, and he's just going to do whatever it is that, that he wants, and, and he's headed for a fall as a result. Then notice in verse 10 as he, as he uh, talks about how he was diatrophies. John talks about how he's pratting against us with malicious words. So diatrophies is the kind of person, and this is so scary, and this I have run into through the years. It, he or she is the kind of person who will destroy the reputation of anyone and everyone through slander that stands up to them. 
And, and the word prating means to bubble up. It means to boil over. It's, it's, it's a word that's used to describe talk that is fluent. It is agitated, but it's empty. Words, accusations, slander, and, and gossip being extended toward a person or persons or a church and all. But by the time, just like bubbles come up and is there bubbling around and churning like in a spa or something like that, and then what happens when the bubbles come to the surface? There's just nothing to them. But they agitated and all of this stuff, but it, but it doesn't have any basis in fact. And so he's, he's malicious. And he's prating against John and those with him, slandering John in an attempt to, to harm him. Just flat out telling lies concerning him. And that's why I think it is so important to remember what Paul wrote to Timothy. And he said, do not receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. If there's two or three witnesses of, of wrongdoing, then Paul said, then deal with it and deal with it strongly in leadership. There's no place for sinful leadership in the body of Christ. But a leader like John in this particular position is vulnerable to anything and everything being said about him. And if it's believed on the basis of one person saying it, his reputation can be destroyed by a person who never reveals their true motive. And it destroys churches. And it destroys men's reputations and women's reputations in this city. Things that are said about people that have no basis in fact. But some diatrophies has uh, slandered them in an attempt to destroy them. And I, I, it is, I, I've run into a handful of these folks through the years. And they are willing to take a church down rather than deal with what it is that's going on in their life. They don't care. And Diotrephes was one of those uh, kinds of, of guys, and they used slander uh, to do it. And then notice number five will only be another hour. In, in verse 10, he's controlling and he's dictatorial. So um, he takes and he forbids those who uh, wish to put, uh, wish to extend hospitality. That's none of his business. Their home is their home. Their food is their food. Their clothes is their clothes. Their money is their money. That's no, that's no, that's not Diotrephes' business at all. He does what he wants with his money, with his house, with his whatever. But he, nobody has a right to go in and start to micromanage shepherding doctrine, individual Christians' lives and being led by the Spirit. But a diatrophist thinks nothing of crossing those lines and beginning to, to, to speak to people this way, forbidding those in the church who wish to show hospitality to the Apostle John and to others, forbidding them from, from doing so. And they'll control people's lives and, 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 and all and, and think nothing of it. They take a place in a person's life that be, belongs only to God and there's no fear in them related to that. I remember a pastor uh, years ago at a pastor's conference and he made an observation to us as pastors and it was a good warning and he was warning us about this kind of thing. He wasn't dealing with diatrophies specifically. But he's talking about there's a lot of motives for ministering. And Gaius' motive was love. 
Diotrephes his motives to be seen. And there's a lot of motives in ministry. To be number one, to have power over other people, to get people to like me, to enrich myself. There are a lot of motives in ministry. He's talking about this kind of thing. And he spoke and he said, you know, one of the things that I think about so many Protestant preachers and, and pastors is that they become Protestant pastors because the position of Pope's already taken. And it's a, it's a good point. And then I heard one pastor say, in a conference too, and he said, it's all right, if you want to be a Pope, just be sure to spell it with two O's. But I don't know what being a popio would mean. I never got it. I never understood it. But it's been... It, it comes to my mind every so often. I don't say that the Holy Spirit brings it to my mind every so often. I say that it does is just a protection because this kind of, of thing is, is in us. And Peter, Apostle Peter warned against it in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. The elders who are among you I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers. Not by constraint but willingly. Not for dishonest gain but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then notice finally in verse 10. Number six, he's harsh in his treatment of, of others. They didn't, believe, they didn't agree with what he wanted them to do. Excommunicated him right out of the church. It, w- it wasn't that they were violating the word of God. They were violating what he wanted them to do. And that's, that's the standard they put. If it's my way or the highway, this is what I'm telling you to do. And if you don't, you know, do it, then, then you've got to go too. And then you become a part of the slander you know, machine too that, that begins to be waged a, a, against you. Putting them out of the church for simply obeying the Word of God, which calls us to, to be hospitable. And sometimes there are people like that in positions of authority in, in a church. But their example is, is not to be followed. And uh, sometimes you can wonder, I do, and uh, maybe it's because um, there's something wrong with me, but sometimes you wonder, why do people stay with a leader like that? He's just throwing around, pushing his weight around, getting rich off of everybody and beating, you know, and the whole kind of deal and, and all. But people do. The Apostle Paul marveled at it. He wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11:20. He said, for you put up with it. If one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one smites you on the face, it's a weird thing. Some people, are, for some reason, attracted to that kind of thing. But John makes it very, very clear. This kind of leadership in the name of Jesus is unacceptable. And he declares that right there in verse 10, 
He's going to take care of all this personally when he came there. John's saying to Gaius, I know that this situation is intolerable. It's no way for it to be. Don't you take care of it. I'll take care of it uh, when, when I come. And then notice in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. Don't imitate what Diotrephes is doing, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Now, I don't think he's saying that Diotrephes isn't saved. Maybe he is saved. Maybe he isn't saved. But he's had no life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. He does not know what God is like. He has no revelation, true revelation of, of, of God. And so he tells Gaius, listen, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. Now listen, everything in life teaches us. If you and I are Christians who will only learn from the situations that are easy, then we will miss some of the greatest lessons in life. Everything in life teaches. The easy circumstances, the blessed circumstances, the hard circumstances, they all teach us something. I think about David going to become the second king in the nation of Israel after Saul. Saul, the first king, an absolute disaster. He is a Diotrephes times ten. And what does God do? He brings David, the next king of Israel, into the very household of Saul, makes him the one that is his armor bearer, makes him the one that is, is playing the instrument in the house. And you think, what, God, what are you doing? I mean, if spears being thrown all over the place, you think uh, dinner is unsettled at your house. What was God doing? He brought David close to Saul. To remove the Saul from David. And there's a Saul in all of us. And God will be careful. He will allow certain things to come into our life to where we look and we can look at that thing and say, the lesson to be learned here is I never want to do that. And I never want to be that toward any, anybody else. Then on to happier things, and we close quickly with this. Verse 12, he then talks now about uh, diligent and, and quietly diligent Demetrius. Demetrius has a good testimony from all. He's got a good reputation. Everybody that knows him talks about his godliness and, and his obedience. And not only a good testimony from all, but from the truth itself. He, he, he not only speaks the word, but he lives the word. So apparently... Demetrius has brought probably third John to Gaius. Now he needs a place to stay for the night before he goes on. So he's being commended by John. This is a good guy. This guy's serving the Lord. He's the real deal. Extend hospitality to him. And not only uh, is he testified to from all and from the truth itself, he said, we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. This guy is good as a legitimate teacher of the Word of God, a minister of Jesus Christ, extend hospitality to him. Now, we don't know anything more about Demetrius than what we learn from him here in this, this particular uh, letter. But he's a picture of the kind of person that made the early church great 
and the kind of, of person, the body of Christ, that has made the body of Christ great through all of the ages. That person that's just willingly to quietly go on about the Lord's business even if no one else notices them, even if they never become rich or famous. But unlike diatrophies, they don't care who notices them or who doesn't notice them. God has called them to do what they're doing, and they're going to do that. And it's a privilege to serve that kind of person. And so perhaps Demetrius, we could look at him and say he's the, the quietly diligent or the overlooked or the unnoticed. But the body of Christ, it moves forward on the basis of that kind of person. I had many things to write, he said to you, but I don't, or many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. So you say, why is the letter short? Here's the reason why. He said, this, there's a lot of things I want to say, but I want to say them face to face to you. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak then face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. All the folks from here, <clears throat> maybe the city of Ephesus, we greet you there, whatever city this is. And then he asked Gaius, would you greet the friends by name? In other words, individually or personally on our behalf. God knows that sometimes in our service to the Lord, we just need an older saint to come up to us, put their arm around us, and say, I know what Diotrephes is doing. I know the mess that he's making. And I know that he's not alone. There are many others like him. But leave Diotrephes to others and leave him to the Lord. You go on about your business for the Lord. And so often a person will sit under a diatrophies for a time or be affected by some little Napoleon, you know, in the name of religion or something like that, and they get a bitter taste in their mouth over the whole thing, and then they'll want to use that as an excuse to quit what God has called them to do, and we must never do that. Every single one of us will be supplied with ample excuses to quit what God has called us to do, if that's what we're looking for. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we needed John to come, put his arm around us, and say, don't put your eyes on any of that. Keep your eyes on what God has called you to do. Keep your eyes on the Demetriuses. Keep your eyes on the people that are doing good and making a difference. And don't let a diatrophies derail you in your service to the Lord. Because if we do, what is it an evidence of? I've taken my eyes off of Jesus. And the Bible says that we are to be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And He's the one that's faithful to put that arm around us and say, you stay in there. Keep quietly doing what you're doing. You be faithful. Let God take care of the diatrophies. You be faithful to what God has called you to. Let's stand together and we'll pray.